Okay, we're recording. All right, good evening, everyone. So, our topic for tonight is German scientists and the Egyptian rocket program. And in the in the long history of Israel's intelligence services, this is not one of the prettier episodes, or for that matter, successful. Really, uh, it was actually a dark cloud over the the Mossad uh, for their ineptitude or exaggeration. So on July twenty first, nineteen sixty two, uh, just a few weeks after the return of Yossela Schumacher from New York uh, to Israel. Uh, the state of Israel was jostled by news that Egypt had tested four long-range missiles, two Victory-class missiles with a range of 175 miles and two Conqueror missiles with a range of 350 miles. This totally caught Israel off guard, including its intelligence services. And Egypt boasted that it could hit anywhere south of Beirut. Now, last I checked, what's south of Beirut? Israel. So any spot within the uh, Medinat Israel was claimed to be within the, t- uh, the range of Egyptian rockets in 1962. Now, people complained in the intelligence community that while Isser Harel had his agents wasting their time hunting down an ultra-Orthodox yeshiva boy in 12 different countries, the Mossad had dropped the ball and on the missile capabilities of Israel's largest and most dangerous neighboring Arab country. So this is a, a real legitimate criticism. Why were you wasting your efforts finding Yasala? you got to be careful about the, the, the neighbors who are going to kill us all. Now, what really happened here? So we spent several sessions on Israel's clandestine efforts to produce non-conventional weapons, but they were aware that the Arab states also would have an interest in producing non-conventional weapons as well. So in 1959, uh, President Gamal Abdel Nasser of Egypt decided to pursue an arsenal of secret uh, high-level weaponry, non-conventional weapons, and he recruited hundreds of German scientists from the Nazi era who were experts in rocketry and in aviation research. So there was deep public unease in Israel after the missile tests. The uh, The word on the street was, the scuttlebutt was, that Nasser is the Hitler of the Middle East. And the intelligence services were stunned. This was a great embarrassment for Harel and the Mossad. The defense ministry said, quote, it felt as if the sky was falling in on our heads. There was a fear of a second Holocaust and a chain reaction that engendered further extreme actions on Israel's part. So the Mossad was put on emergency footing and they broke into embassies and airline offices all over Europe looking for clues because they assumed that the the Egyptians had to have had European help in producing a rocket that that successful. There was no way that the Arabs on their own had the chachma, the seichel, the the wisdom, the scientific know-how to do this. They must have had help from the the Christian goyim, that the Europeans must have been involved. So a Swiss employee at the Zurich office of Egypt Air gave away the mail to the Mossad. And the Mossad found out that Eugen Sanger and Wolfgang Pils were the heads of this Egyptian rocket project, the German scientists. And that Paul Gorky and Hans Krug were department heads. So they knew the names of you know, the leading uh, German figures in the Egyptian program. And they researched the background of these guys. Who were these people? Who were these German scientists working for the Egyptians? The answer basically is that they were underemployed and underutilized German scientists who had experience from World War II and needed work and found it in Egypt. Because remember, the the German state did not have a military to speak of uh, at that time. I mean, West Germany was being protected by the United States and uh, and England um, and didn't have its own armed forces, at least not back then. So... These people who engaged in, in uh, offensive weapons research under under Nazi rule had basically been lying dormant for the last decade and a half. But they had expertise and it was available for sale and the Egyptians were willing to pay. So they went where their bread was buttered. Um, 
the first German scientists arrived in April of 1960, and they were given excellent salaries and luxurious accommodations. You could live like a king if your name was Hans and you wanted to work in Cairo. Uh, Intra-commercial was the European Front Corporation for this, for this whole thing. So intra-commercial was you know, the, uh, the face of this enterprise. In Factory 36, Willie Messerschmitt of the famed Messerschmitt planes, aircraft, were building new Egyptian fighter planes. Factory 135 had Ferdinand Bradner building jet engines. Super secret Factory 333 was building intermediate range missiles. And by July of 1962, uh, Factory 333 had produced 30 missiles. Four had been tested. And the remainder were paraded on display in Cairo, draped under Egyptian flags that Ky- that the Egyptians had in the streets of Cairo, a massive military parade with those long missiles under a flag, like right out of the Cuban Missile Crisis era. You know, we're talking about where the Soviet Union would have, you know, these long missiles on parade in Moscow. So Nasser did the same thing in the streets of Cairo in Egypt. And that'll scare the hell out of you if you're, if you're the, the, the enemy country who could be on the receiving end of these missiles. All right, well. Isser Harel received reports that Egypt was trying to produce as many as 900 missiles, including missiles that could kill all living things. In other words, the apocalypse, the end of the world. That sounds pretty scary. And Harel bought into these extreme fears. He thought, yeah, this is real. They could kill every last man, woman, and child on earth, not just in Israel. So Harel was no longer the man he used to be. He was once revered and admired for the way he ran the Israeli intelligence services. But now he had gone a little bit crazy. He was a Bissel Meshuggah in the Kepler. You know, he, he wasn't the man he used to be. And Harel regarded Germany as the eternal and implacable foe of the Jewish people. That the Germans were not just bad in the Nazi era, they would always be bad. And that these German scientists working for the Egyptians are rehabilitated Nazis who want to kill every last one of us. But uh, Harel had a problem. He wanted David Ben-Gurion, who was still the prime minister, getting on in years, but is still the prime minister, to make a big issue of the German scientists in Egypt with Conrad Adenauer, who was the chancellor of West Germany. But Ben-Gurion didn't want to do that. Ben-Gurion was carefully cultivating a relationship with Adenauer and German Defense Minister Franz Josef Strauss. For what purpose? Well, West Germany was supplying Israel with significant amounts of weaponry in an attempt to atone for the sins of the Holocaust. And Ben-Gurion did not want to rock the boat. All Ben-Gurion was willing to do was to ask his Deputy Defense Minister Shimon Peres to discreetly and quietly inquire of Franz Josef Strauss about the Egyptian connection. But what Ben-Gurion did absolutely not want to have happen was for this to become public knowledge. Because if it becomes public knowledge that there are German scientists working in Egypt to produce rockets to kill Jews, then the whole relationship with Germany could get scuttled and Israel would stand to lose out on millions and millions and millions of dollars of aid and assistance and military uh, equipment. So Ben-Gurion had his priorities. He wanted to have a relationship with the new Germany, the new and improved Germany. And as far as Harel was concerned, there is no new and improved Germany. There's just an evil Germany, forever the foe of Am Yisrael. Okay, well, Harel didn't like this. He felt that Ben-Gurion's approach on the scientist issue, on the rocket program, was woefully insufficient. And instead, Harel went on a personal crusade against the German scientists. And so on September 11th, 1962, the Mossad assassinated Dr. Heinz Krug, one of the leading figures in the Egyptian rocket program. The Mossad's effort to eliminate the German scientists came to be known as Operation Damocles, a sword hanging over the head of every Egyptian, a German scientist working for Egypt. One of the, the methods that they would pursue Operation Damocles was with letter bombs. Letter bombs, if we recall from a few weeks ago, had been actually quite successful in 1956 
in targeting Egyptian military officers who were responsible for the Fedayeen attacks out of Gaza into Israel. But this time, the letter bombs didn't work as well. Uh, they were a failed tactic, this go-around. So how was Krug ki- killed? You know, He was assassinated, but how, how did the Mossad go about doing it? So he was kidnapped on September 10th, 1962, in Munich. Now, bear in mind, he's a German citizen being kidnapped in Germany by Israeli operatives and ultimately ends up dead. So this was a first for the state of Israel to uh, assault people, citizens of that country, in that country, a country with, with which Israel has diplomatic relations. So this was a major step forward in terms of a hostile act that previously Israel had not indulged in. Okay, so he was kidnapped on September 10th, and he was brought, sedated, to Marseille. From there, he was flown to Israel on a flight with Moroccan Jewish Olim. Now, if you know your, your history of Aliyah, the Moroccan Aliyah in the early 60s was the major Aliyah, 62, 63. And so there were regularly flights out of southern France, uh, El Al, to Israel, uh, carrying these Moroccan Olim. And this German scientist who was kidnapped was taken on one of these planes. In Israel, he was interrogated very harshly. What does harshly mean? I'm sure there was a little uh, coercive treatment. Okay, I'm sure they didn't uh, use the kid gloves. They, 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 they roughed him up a little bit. And he was offered the chance to go back to Munich to work as a Mossad agent. In other words, to flip the script and work for the Jews now. But the Mossad quickly reconsidered, thinking it too risky, that he could say he was going to work for them, but in fact go back and spill the beans on what had happened. So not knowing what to do with Heinz Krug, they shot him and dumped his body in the ocean. So that's what happened to Dr. Heinz Krug. He ended up dead. Now, on November 27th, Wolfgang Pills, who was one of the top two figures in the, uh, the rocket program, his uh, secretary was horribly maimed by a letter bomb that was sent to kill him. On November 28th, five Egyptian clerks were killed by a package bomb. So we see that people are getting hurt or getting killed, but it's not necessarily the real target. It's not necessarily the Egyptian, the German scientists. It's just the poor schnook Egyptians who are working in the office there. Now, many of these bombs had been sent by the Champagne Spy. So for those of you who have read Ronan Bergman's book and some of the other books on, on a targeted assassination, the Champagne Spy was Wolfgang Lutz, otherwise known, a.k.a. as Zevgur Ari. Lutz was born in Germany in 1921 to a Jewish mother and a German father, and he was uncircumcised. That's important. It means he could get away with pretending to be a goy, and nobody's going to know the difference. He made Aliyah in 1937, escaping the Nazis, and served in the Haganah. But his perfect German uh, language skills and his Aryan good looks made him a great candidate for spycraft. He didn't look Jewish. He looked like a goy. So he pretended to be, to be a former SS officer who had a, riding, uh, a horse riding business for the, Egy- the Egyptian elites. So here Wolfgang... Uh, Lutz, a.k.a. Zev Gurari, an Israeli spy, a half-Jewish Israeli spy, uh, is pretending to be a German expat living in Alexandria uh, and catering to the horseback riding desires of wealthy Egyptians slash Germans living in Egypt. And by by that means, he had entree into elite social circles and can mingle and swingle and pick up a few secrets here and there, and know who to send letter bombs to and kill them. All right. Well, while the Amman, the military intelligence, liked letter bombs and package bombs, Isser Harel and the Mossad actually did not like that strategy because you can't control who opens it. You know, it could be a child. It could be a secretary. It could be a postal worker. I mean, after all, the the the, the bombs in 1954 in the old uh, Lavon affair failed miserably. So you never know who's going to get hurt in in one of these kind of letter bombs. So it's not a good idea. Moreover, the German scientists got wind of this, and they quickly decided we're not going to open our own mail. 
just like you know kings have a uh, food taste uh, food tasters that they don't get poisoned to death so too the german scientists had letter openers so they don't get blown to smithereens let the, let the, let the you know ahmed who opens my mail get blown to smithereens um now phil's secretary was horribly maimed in such a bombing but nothing happened to him and the bombing did not convince the germans to leave egypt Instead, it just convinced them to hire some more security guards, including a, an ex-Nazi by the name of Hermann Adolf Valentin, to run security for all the, the, the Germans in Egypt. So basically, the, the story is this. Israel's trying to threaten the, the, the German scientists to go home. Don't work for, the, for Nasser. Don't build missiles for our enemy. Go back to Europe and live the rest of your life in peace. And we'll threaten you with bombs in order to get you to go home. The problem was they threw the bombs and the, the Germans didn't go home. They just figured out ways to avoid getting hurt. Okay. So another attempted assassination, this time uh, again in Europe, was to assassinate Heinz Kleinwachter, another one of the top-ranking figures, when he was back in Switzerland. But it ended terribly. Yitzhak Shamir, the future prime minister, and some of his goons on the Mossad hit squad were involved in this attempted assassination. But there was bad weather. It was icy. It was snowy. Difficult road conditions. And Kleinwachter had a gun. And the Israeli gun didn't fire. So everybody had to head for the hills and run away. So this attempted assassination ended up almost not producing a German death, almost an Israeli death. They were lucky to get out alive. Well, the letter bombs made the German scientists working in Egypt and at the European front companies uh, realized that their lives were in danger. But it wasn't enough to really scare them off. So the next step was to send threatening phone calls to the scientists themselves and to their family members. In other words, you threaten the guy's wife and kids unless he goes back home to, to, to Hamburg. You know, get out of Cairo, go back to Europe. Rafi Eitan, who, uh, uh, of great fame in the Eichmann episode, found a way to read the mail being sent uh, to the European firms. So basically, there was really good surveillance, and the Mossad had accurate knowledge of who was coming and going and what kind of work product was coming and going. Some of the electronic equipment that was used for this operation, which was very sophisticated electronic uh, equipment, the you know the, the uh, most advanced technology for 1962, was... Uh, procured for the Mossad not by uh, Israeli agents directly because there was an embargo on certain of the highest level technology uh, to Israel. So how did Israel get a hold of some of this stuff? The answer is Meyer Lansky, the, the gangster, had a long-standing relationship with the, with the Israeli state. And of course, if you've seen you know, The Godfather, uh, Hyman Roth gets killed in the airport. That's supposed to be uh, a, a Meyer Lansky type character. But um, you know, he had this ongoing relationship with the Mossad. And he was through out of Miami, out of Miami Beach, through his Chicago connections, able to get the best equipment uh, to pursue uh, this uh, operation. And Lansky met with Rafi Eitan in Lausanne, Switzerland, to give him over the goods. Isser Harel was especially interested in one particular uh, Austrian scientist, a man by the name of Otto Jochlik. Otto Jochlik was an Austrian who specialized in nuclear radiation, or so he said. Well, Jochlik was considered the most dangerous man in all of Europe. Shockingly, Jochlik knocked on the embassy door of the Israeli embassy door on October 23rd, 1962, with an offer to reveal to Israel all the juicy details of Egypt's missile program. Two weeks later, Yochlik was taken to Israel and uh, to be interrogated, not as a, a, as a hostile um, a character, but as someone willing to give over, of his own accord, uh, very secretive information. Now, why did he do it? Why was an Austrian scientist who presumably you know, was probably abyssal anti-Semitic, you know, what, what, why is he helping the Jews? The answer may be that he was terribly scared, frightened by uh, the disappearance of Heinz Krug. You know, if one scientist disappears and they don't know what happened to him and they assume he was killed by the, by the Israeli Secret Service, then I could be next. So what's the best solution? 
play for the other team. Tell the Jews what they want. So Yochlik spent four days in Israel, and he revealed to them uh, that he knew from a meeting with Dr. Mahmoud Khalil, who was the head of the Egyptian rocket program, that Egypt was working on two different projects simultaneously. One was Operation Ibis for a radiological bomb featuring Cobalt-60. And the other one was Operation Cleopatra, which was to produce two atomic bombs by buying 20% enriched uranium from the United States and then using uh, uh, centrifuges to enrich it to 90%. So, you know, nuclear weapons, Cobalt-60 radioactive weapons, this sounds pretty scary. Very, very scary. Yoklik claimed that Egypt was working on an ABC threat, atomic, biological, chemical, ABC. Perez and the defense ministry insisted upon being able to interrogate Yoklik. Now, bear in mind the following. Yoklik was interviewed by the Mossad. The Mossad operates under you know, the auspices of the, uh, through the prime minister's office, but it's a... Uh, you know, it's not the military. The defense ministry under Shimon Perez wants to hear this guy, Yoklik, directly. Does not want to rely upon the Mossad's assessment of what Yoklik had to say. Usually, intelligence agencies shared information, but they did not share access to informants. So for the defense ministry to insist, we want to talk to this guy because we don't trust your analysis, was a major break from protocol. And, uh, Harris threatened to resign if he wasn't allowed to do this. So Ben-Gurion, as the prime minister and defense minister, said, fine, Gazette, go ahead, interview Yoklin. And Benjamin Blumberg of LACOM, which was the, the branch of the of military intelligence, which was uh, reserved for scientific matters and nuclear matters, um, did the interrogating. And he found that Yoklin wasn't credible, was not credible, that he was saying all sorts of shtusim, that, the, that his claim that Egyptians were going to produce atomic weapons and cobalt weapons, radiological weapons, is nonsense. It's just all talk. It's not real. So, experts in Israel saw the report of Yoklik's revelations and were dismissive of Egypt's ability to get enriched uranium or to do anything dangerous with cobalt. This, this is a pure fantasy and couldn't be nowhere near reality. But this soothing tone of the report did not calm down the nation's leaders. They were still nervous. Hey, we don't want to take any chances. And one of the things that made uh, people, high-ranking people in Israel especially nervous was that on January 11, 1963, Egypt used poison gas in its war in Yemen. Now, for five years, Egypt was bogged down in, in a civil war in Yemen. Uh, Yemen was Egypt's version of Vietnam, or like the Soviet, you know, Afghanistan. That all these countries have uh, forever wars that that in which they lose soldiers and lose a lot of material, and it's kind of silly. And why they do it? And in retrospect, it was dumb. So Yemen was that for Egypt up until the Six Day War, and was one of the reasons why Israeli prognosticators thought that Egypt wasn't going to go to war because they were too bogged down in Yemen. But in any event, they used poison gas. Now, if you could use poison gas, which is a violation of the laws of war, then, yeah, you could make a, a radioactive weapon, an atomic weapon. We've got to be scared of these people. They'll do horrible things. Okay. Well, Golda Meir, who at that time uh, is the foreign minister, asked John F. Kennedy, President Kennedy, to intervene uh, with, uh, with Egypt on its pursuit of non-conventional weapons. But Kennedy did nothing. Why did Kennedy do nothing? Now, bear in mind, Kennedy didn't do all that much on Israel's non-conventional weapons. He he talked a big game and insisted upon inspections. But then, once once the inspections happened and they were sort of half-hearted, he he he, he stepped back a little bit. So he's not interested in picking a fight with Egypt, um, and so he doesn't it doesn't do anything. What Israel decided it needed to do was to disrupt the development of the guidance system for these missiles, which was the weakest link in the chain, that of all the things that are needed to make these missiles viable and potentially uh, destructive over Israel's cities, the one thing that was missing was a guidance system. Now, in 2024, the guidance systems are much more further advanced. We have modern technology. But in, back in 62 or 63, 
this was a big chidush, a big novelty, and the Egyptians had not figured it out yet. Um, so, on February 20th, the Mossad agents decided it was time to assassinate Dr. Heinz Kleinwachter in Germany. But the agents were unsuccessful in their attempt. So now, you know, you try to kill somebody, it doesn't work out, you don't want to get caught. You also don't want the target to get away. So what do you do? They tried to intimidate the daughter of Dr. Paul Gorky, the other major figure in the program, in Switzerland. And threatening the family members of leading scientists was a way of getting them to try to come home. But she alerted the ex-Nazi who was running security for the, the, the Germans and the Egyptians on this program. And he called the cops. And what happened? Yoklik and a Mossad agent by the name of Joseph Bengal were arrested. The last thing you want in an intelligence service is for your agent to get arrested for trying to commit a crime, including the crime of murder, on foreign soil. That's like the big, big thing, big no-no. You don't want to have that happen. So here, Schmendrick Yoklik, who was telling them all sorts of stories about atomic bombs, and Bengal, an agent, were arrested. All right, they served two months in a Swiss jail. And Isser Harel and Golda at this point want Ben-Gurion to press Adenauer. Like, you know, we're trying our best to disrupt the Egyptian rocket program by attacking the Germans, but our efforts to attack the Germans are failing, and we got an agent sitting in a Swiss jail. So you, Ben-Gurion, you got to talk to the highest powers and tell the the Chancellor of Germany they have to stop this. But Ben-Gurion refused. And relations between Ben-Gurion and the Mimuneh, or the Ramsad, the, the, the head of the intelligence community, Harel, was going from bad to worse. So in the next few minutes, we're going to discuss how the career of Isser Harel came to an end over this German scientist issue. So on March 15th, 1963, the United Press International announced, uh, UPI, uh, the wire service, announced that Yoklik and Bengal had been arrested. So now there's a story all over Europe and the United States, that two people have been arrested for trying to kill a German scientist working for the Egyptians, including an Israeli agent. This is horrible. Israel did not want this to become public knowledge, and now it was public knowledge. But in Israel, where there's no freedom of the press and there's horrible censorship, the story was still suppressed. So Harel sent three Israeli journalists to to, to Europe on a mission to uncover more information. But really, what he was actually doing was laundering information that he already knew. Meaning, the the newspaper editors had been told by the military censor, you can't publish X, Y, and Z. That's true only when it's an Israeli story. But if Israeli journalists go abroad and find information abroad, they're at greater liberty to reveal stuff. Now, it's not as though they had to do any real investigating. Harrell already knew the information. He's just sending them outside the country to circumvent the military censor. That's a, a big sin, uh, potentially. So what's going on? Uh, by March 17th, sensationalist headlines about Nazis making deadly weapons for the Egyptians was all over the foreign newspapers and the Israeli newspapers. So, of course, the Israeli citizenry, the population, is getting nervous that our, our implacable foe, the Egyptians, is getting help from the Nazis to make rockets to kill us all? Another Holocaust? So Ben-Gurion was so angry with Isser Harel over that journalist stunt because it was spoiling relations with Germany just at a time when Israel needed those relations more than ever before. Why was Israel so desperate for strong relations with Germany? Because relations with France were in a steep decline. Uh, that De Gaulle was not the friend that he, he could have been, and France, which had been the major arms supplier of Israel, was stepping away from that role, and Israel needed a replacement, and the United States was not yet serving in that capacity. It would a few years later, but Germany, West Germany, could be, you know, the the, the, the savior, so to speak, for the Israeli military. So how could you, how could Harel and the Mossad poison relations with Germany at this time? Shame on them. They're ruining everything. Well, Ben-Gurion was also angry with Isser Harel 
over the Israel beer episode. Now, for those of you from Woodmere who have been listening to me all these years, you may recall that we did a, a lecture on hero, a series of lectures on heroes and villains of modern Jewish history. This is maybe five, six, seven years ago. And one of the villains was Israel Beer, or Israel Bar, who was a spy. And we don't even exactly know who originally sent him, the Soviet Union, whatever it might have been. And he infiltrated uh, the Yishuv and the Haganah and Israeli military uh, uh, apparatus. And for 20 years, he was essentially undercover. And finally, he was exposed by the Mossad in 1961 and served five years in prison and died. Uh, it's not even clear what his real name was or if he was a Jew. He claimed his name was Yisrael Beer and that he was an Austrian Jew, but no one knows for sure. Um, the, the problem for Ben-Gurion was Yisrael Beer had been a close advisor of Ben-Gurion's. And Ben-Gurion was embarrassed like this guy hoodwinked us all and got so close to the prime minister and really he was a secret agent for the enemy the whole time. Well, Ben Green was angry with Harel for exposing that fact. Okay. So also Harel was angry with Ben Gurion and was angry with Shimon Perez over the fact that security for the Dimona nuclear project had been given over to Lakam and not to the Mossad. So there was mutual animosity. Ben Gurion angry with Harel, Harel, Harel angry with Ben Gurion and Perez. Things are not good. Not good. Well, Menachem Begin steps into the breach. Who is Menachem Begin at this point? Menachem Begin is the perpetual head head of the opposition. The head of, at that time, uh, uh, it was uh, Gachal, Gush Cherut Liberalim. He was the head of the Cherut Party, which was in union with with the liberals. So it's called Gachal. And he said that Ben-Gurion was selling Uzis to the Germans while the Germans are sending germs to our enemies, the Egyptians. So, you know, shame on you, Ben-Gurion. You're, you, you know, you're, you're, you're giving the Germans our, uh, our Israeli-invented guns and they're giving uh, non-conventional weapons, germ warfare to our enemies, the Egyptians. Shimon Peres realized that Isser Harel was going bonkers and it was time to make a move against him. So he had Amman, the military intelligence, assess the German scientist situation, and they came to a very non-alarmist conclusion. The accusations that were made by Yoklik that Harel had bought wholesale were no more than science fiction, and Yoklik was a lying opportunist trying to sucker Israel for money. Uh, well, Ben-Gurion read the report on March 24th, 1963. And he summoned Isser Harel the next day to his office, March 25th. The two argued bitterly. And at some point in the course of this fight, Isser Harel resigned as the head of the Mossad. Uh, he assumed that Ben-Gurion would beg him to stay. You know, sometimes when someone is uh, irreplaceable uh, and they threaten to resign, even if you're in the middle of a fight with him, you say, please, please don't go, don't go. We, we need you. We can't go on without you. That's what Harel thought Ben-Gurion was going to say. But instead, how did Ben-Gurion react? He said, goodbye, don't let the door hit you on the way out. You know, you're gone. So Harel was gone. And now the question is, who's going to run the Mossad? Because for the last 11 years, it had been Isser. Uh, so Amos Manor was the head of the Shin Bet. And Ben-Gurion um, said, where's Manor? Call him for me. I'm going I'm to put him in charge of the Mossad. But they couldn't find him because he was on vacation somewhere in the Galilee. So because they couldn't find him, and there were no cell phones back then, Ben-Gurion said to his attache, get me Mayor Amit, the head of the Amman, military intelligence. And uh, uh, Amit was available. So a few minutes later, he comes into the office and says, okay, Mayor, you're going to be the head of the Mossad. Totally caught him off guard. But uh, they're never again would be a Ramsad, an all-encompassing Memuneh, someone who's uh, the head collectively of all the intelligence agencies that Harel had been. Uh, from that point forward, there'd be a head of the military intelligence, there'd be a head of Shin Bet, a head of Mossad, a head of Lakam, but each one would have his own department and nobody would be the ruler over everyone. Uh, this firing of or resignation of uh, Isser Harel because of a fight with Ben-Gurion, was actually an example of someone losing a battle 
just a little bit before the other guy loses the war. What am I talking about? Ben-Gurion himself was basically pushed out of office just a few months later in June of 63. That Ben-Gurion had been prime minister of Israel for most of its the first 15 years of its existence. The only uh, break in his prime ministership was from January of 54 through uh, late uh, 55, when Moshe Sharet was temporarily the prime minister as a fill-in, when Ben-Gurion was uh, vacationing or so-called retiring at Stable Care in the Negev. But otherwise, for 15 years, Ben-Gurion was the boss. But he had been getting old and, you know, curmudgeonly and crusty, and he, he had enemies in the cabinet. So he was gone a few months later to be replaced by Levi Eshkol. Okay. Well, before Israel Harel was gone, he took to um, to political subterfuge when all violence failed. He wanted to shame Germany, that Nazis were building weapons to kill Jews. But in reality, what was it? What was this, this German enterprise in Egypt? It was just a bunch of Germans trying to make money, earn a parnasa, and this was the way they could do it. And Ben-Gurion and Perez believed that there was a new Germany and that the German state was in no way countenancing all this stuff. But Harel rejected that notion and said there must be there must be in cahoots. It must be that the German state and the and high-ranking people in Germany are uh, you know collaborating with Nasser. Fine. Um, now Amit took over the Mossad when it was in total disarray. He wanted to slow down the targeted killings and instead focus on getting accurate information about the missile project that one of the problems was they had flawed information and they were killing people, trying to kill people left and right. But to what end? They were really not achieving anything. So better we should know what really is going on in Egypt. Moreover, and this is very important, less tracking down of Nazis and more focusing on defending Israel from current enemies. That's a critical point. You know, Nazi crimes were committed two decades earlier. And they're not really threatening anybody right now. They're living wherever they are in Argentina and Uruguay or who knows what. But they're not hurting anyone. Their crimes are of the past. But the Arab states, whether Egypt or Syria or Iraq, those countries are threatening Israel in the here and now. So whatever manpower the Israeli secret services have should be directed towards the current threats. All right. Well, when Yoklik and Bengal were sentenced in the Swiss jail, the judge got angry because a man in the courtroom had a gun. And it turned out it was Herman Mann, who was an ex-Nazi, who had alerted the German police about uh, Israeli threats to, to German scientists. Now, Rafi Maidan asked uh, Simon Wiesenthal, the Nazi hunter, about the guy uh, who with the gun and was told that this guy, Mann, was actually an underling for an SS officer named Colonel Otto Scorzini. And Maidan brought the information to Avraham Achituv, another agent, who suggested that Israel tried to co-opt Scorzini. Now here, this guy Scorzini is a big macher among the surviving SS crowd. He's a pretty high-ranking figure. And if we could get him to work for the Jews he could then supply us with information about what other former SS officials are doing on behalf of the Egyptians' uh, you know, rocket program. So they got Shlomo Zabladovich, who was an Israeli in the uh, metal trading business, and who knew Skorzini's estranged wife as a go-between to get to Skorzini. And Eitan Achituv showed up at Skorzini's door and offered him freedom from fear. What is freedom from fear? Remember, all these former SS guys, what are they nervous about in the post-war era? That at some point in time, the Allied forces are going to arrest them, put them on Nuremberg-style trials, send them to life in prison or execute them, or that the Jews, the Mossad, will somehow get a hold of them and either butcher them on the spot or take them back to, to Israel for trial like Eichmann style. A lot of these guys were nervous. And the one thing that Israel could offer them was a promise we're not going to go after you. Freedom from fear. You cooperate with us, we'll leave you alone. And that's that's important. It's important. So 
Scorzini did fear uh, that either an Eichmann-style situation or Jewish Avengers would just kill him outright. So he gave the Mossad priceless intelligence in the months ahead about the Egyptian missile program and the Germans working on it. Okay, that's the way to do it. You don't kill the guy. You say, we'll give you freedom from fear. You, you, you'll, you'll live. Now give us everything you know. So in 19, August of 1963, uh, when this approach was made to Scorzini, it was done by Mossad agents in Madrid. They claimed to be representing NATO countries, but quickly shed the facade and acknowledged that they were Israeli agents. Who was Scorzini anyway? He was a Nazi hero and Hitler's favorite. Hitler's favorite. Why was he Hitler's favorite? Well, he, did a, he, he was... Uh, he had some some famous exploits under his belt. By far, Scorzini's most famous exploit was that he and a team of gliders went over the border into Italy and rescued Mussolini from captivity in September of 1943. That Mussolini had been had been taken prisoner at some point in the, during the course of the war, but then he was freed by uh, an SS uh, mission, and then would go on to you know live a little while longer, and then get executed at the war's end. Okay, so the Mossad got to Scorzini through Scorzini's wife, the Countess Ilse von Finkenstein. That's a great name, Ilse von Finkenstein. She was a seductress. And Rafi Maidan famously took one for his country and had relations with her. So that was his, uh, he said, after the war, after the episode was over. Now, Scorzini was a hulk of a man, a huge man. And accusations abounded that he was a, a, a vicious anti-Semite, too, and that he burned down synagogues in Vienna on Kristallnacht. The evidence suggests that he was very, very guilty on November 9 and 10, uh, 1938, in the, destru the destruction of the Viennese synagogues. So uh, the Mossad sent letters. Well, what, 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 what happened next was... Uh, Scorzini was, was put on trial, actually, after the war. And he was acquitted in the post-war trials. But, you know, everybody knew he was guilty. He, there, was no, there, was no, there was no confession. There was no uh, verdict of guilt. But he, everybody knew this guy was a bad character. What did he want? He wanted money. He wanted a real Austrian passport. And he wanted a letter of immunity signed by the Prime Minister of Israel, Levi Eshkol himself saying that he will never be targeted by the state of Israel for violence or prosecution, and he wanted to be off of Simon Wiesenthal's list of, of ex-Nazis. So, what happened now? Levi Eshkol has a, has a question in his mind. Do I sign a letter to Otto Scorzini, a, a, a vicious anti-Semite who did bad things to the Jews during the war, to say, we will not prosecute you, we'll let you go, go free of your crimes because you're going to cooperate with the Mossad and give us information on the Egyptians and the Germans. So Eshkol, who was not a Holocaust survivor, consulted with some in his immediate intelligence circles who were Holocaust survivors, uh, whether or not this was a, a reasonable thing to do. The survivors said, don't do it, that he's a criminal, he harmed our people in the Shoah, don't give him a letter. But Eshkol um, decided, you know what? We'll do it. We'll sign off on it. We'll give him the letter. We'll give him some money. We'll get him an Austrian passport. The only thing that the, that the state of Israel could not do was they could not get Scorzini off of Simon Wiesenthal's uh, uh, list. Now, the reason why they couldn't do that was because Simon Wiesenthal was not an Israeli. Simon Wiesenthal was a European living in Austria, and was his own man. You know, he was a Nazi hunter, but he who operated independently. And just because the state of Israel, for its own reasons of uh, uh, Mossad work and intelligence work, wants to give this guy a pass, Wiesenthal is not giving this guy a pass. Nonetheless, Scorzini agreed to the deal. Okay, fine. Now, the plan was to have Scorzini pretend that he was organizing the Fourth Reich. You know, if Hitler was the Third Reich, there's going to be a Fourth Reich. And his former SS subordinates would have to fall in line and reveal to him all of their various plots, including the Egyptian missile situation, because he's now the boss. He's a higher-ranking SS figure, and your SS loyalty lasts forever, and we're going to establish the Fourth Reich. So in the fall of 1964, 
the Mossad paid for very lavish parties at which details were shared about the goings-on in Egypt. Valentin, who was running security for the German for the Germans in Egypt, was suspicious, but eventually fell into line because Skorzeny said, you have a duty to, as an SS officer to obey me. The Mossad then sent threatening letters, now that they had all this juicy information, uh, threatening scientists and exposing their most intimate details, because now they knew all the dirty secrets where all the, all the skeletons were buried. And it was signed, not by, you know, Mayor Amit Mossad, Jerusalem, but rather it was signed by the Gideons. Who were the Gideons? The Gideons, okay? So that's why the book about the Mossad is Gideon Spies. Uh, the Gideons, not, not like the Gideon Bible. Well, on December 9th, 1964, Perez and Rafi Maidan went to Europe for a meeting with, with, with Franz Josef Strauss, the former defense minister of Germany. And they showed him all the intelligence information that they had collected over the previous few years. And Strauss understood that Germany would not want this information, this dirty laundry, to be revealed in public that former Nazis, including prominent, prestigious members of German society, were working on some sort of nefarious Egyptian missile program. So Strauss was able to encourage the scientists to come home to Germany with offers of new and well-paying jobs. And by 1965, July, even Wolfgang Pils was out of Egypt. The Egyptians never perfected the guidance systems for their missiles, and therefore their missiles never were really much of a threat. So all of this fear fear mongering since 1962 for three years turned out to really be nothing from nothing. But also at that time, Israelis were nervous. Now, Perez sent a letter to Strauss and the German government. And uh, yes, the, the Germans did woo people back to Germany. And the missile project ended in failure. But there's a little bit of a sad end note to all of this. The Israeli spy who was handling things on the ground in in Egypt was Wolfgang Lutz, or a.k.a. Uh, uh, Zev Gurari. And he was discovered in February of 1965 using Soviet technology similar to the technology that uncovered Eli Cohen. Now, if you know the Eli Cohn story, and I think we we spent a session on him years back in the Heroes and Villains uh, course on Eli Cohn, uh, Eli Cohn got caught because he got sloppy at the end, and he was sending too many messages out of Damascus per day. And the Soviet Union gave the Syrians very sophisticated tracking technology that they were able to pinpoint where the the pings, the Morse code was coming from, and they caught Eli Cohn red-handed in the middle of the act with his finger on the on the tapper button. So Wolfgang Lutz was caught in a very similar way. However, the ultimate fate of Wolfgang Lutz and Eli Cohn were not the same. Eli Cohn was clearly an Israeli spy, a Jew spying for, on behalf of Israel, was found guilty and killed, and his body never returned uh, until this very day. Wolfgang Lutz had a cover story. His cover story was that he was a German. They they caught him working for Israel, but his claim was he was a German working for Israel, not an Israeli Jew working as, as, a, as a regular employee of the Mossad. And they never broke his cover story. As far as they were concerned, this Wolfgang Lutz guy really was a goy out of Germany. Uh, and as a result of that, he was able to be traded three years later in an exchange after the Six-Day War, in a massive exchange of prisoners. Had the Egyptians known all along that this guy was not a German goy, but rather an Israeli Jew, they would have hanged him. They would have, he would have been dead right away. So he owed his life, the champagne spy, to the fact that he looked Aryan, spoke a fluent German, and his cover story remained intact. Okay. Now, in 1982, there was a long, long after-action report about this whole German uh, scientist and ro- Egyptian rocket program episode. And the report concluded that if not for the threat of violence, the Germans would not have left Egypt, meaning that the program was scuttled before the Egyptians were able to successfully produce rockets that could be uh, precision targeted towards Israel, but that they could have eventually achieved it and might very well have with the assistance of German ex-Nazis 
Had it not been for the threat of physical violence or an actual violence against some people, including uh, Heinz Krug, who got killed. So basically, what Israel was looking to, 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 to answer was, did we need to get down and dirty and kill people to accomplish our goal? And the answer is yes. But they wouldn't have left if not for violence. Um, and as I mentioned before, it was the first time that Israel harmed citizens of another country with which it had diplomatic relations on that country's soil. So, you know, in in the long run, the Egyptians were unable to threaten Israeli cities in the major conflict of the Six Day War because they lacked these kind of missiles, the missile capability, and because they also may have feared the reaction of Israel as a potentially nuclear state if the Egyptians were to cross a line and bomb uh, civilian targets in, Israel, in, in major cities in Israel. So they didn't have the ability. They also, even if they had the ability, might have been reluctant to use it because of the fear factor that Israel had overwhelming counterforce, uh, which they didn't want to uh, address. Okay. Now, this was uh, an example of Israel's clandestine services going after a neighboring country and the threats posed from a neighboring country. It was exactly the sort of thing that the, the Israeli clandestine services are meant to do. This was not chasing a, a yeshiva bucher in, in New York. It also wasn't chasing Nazis with old crimes. It was chasing Nazis with current crimes. But next time, two weeks from now, when we meet again, we're going to see that the Mossad was not done going after the perpetrators of the Shoah. And the problem that Israel faced was that with the passage of 20 years after the end of the war, statute of limitation laws were going into effect in Germany, Austria, and elsewhere. And so people who were really guilty of horrible things and horrible crimes were going to get away with it. And something had to be done, a show of force. Some Nazi had to be found and put to death in a gruesome fashion to get people to realize we're not done with hunting down Nazis and prosecuting for their crimes. So in two weeks from today, we're going to address the story of Herbert Zuckers, the butcher of Latvia, and his demise in South America. A story that is very different, has some similarities with the Eichmann story and that it's South America and there's a Mossad hit team, but has a very different ending and a deliberately different ending. Okay, any questions about tonight's topic of the German scientists? Any questions? You can unmute if you'd like. No, we're good. All right, on that note, everybody, a good night. I'll see you in two weeks. Take care.